Hey guys, Haik Tadevosan here. Welcome to the second episode of the Power of Mindset podcast. I really want to spend some time over the first four to five episodes to talking about the four pillars that I mentioned on the first episode. And these were the four pillars, as I mentioned, that I had to almost come to learn that they do not come in order in your life. And I mentioned that beginning when I was writing the book, The Power of Mindset, I talked about how there's a perfect order chronological orders and you got to figure out your finances first with finances you get your time and you know you you hire properly and when you get your time back you take care of your fitness with fitness you gain the confidence with confidence you gain the relationships with the relationships you build a family and I was completely wrong and I mentioned that I went back and had to re-edit the entire book and my thesis changed from there's an order to no there is no order and once I found out more about how this imperfect life's balance works is You figure out what's the biggest monkey on your back first. You fix that one. You figure out what's the second, what's the third, what's the fourth. And you really approach it with, I don't want to call it a fifth pillar. There's no fifth F as in the faith. You begin with faith, right? You brush your teeth and you have faith that in six months you'll fix the cavity, right? You buy the gym membership and you have faith that you're going to work out. And six months later to a year later, your health will be fixed. You'll build some muscle. You'll get healthier. You commit to a marathon with faith that you'll work your way up from only being able to run a mile or two to completing a 26.2 mile run. So so I want to spend time talking about the two pillars that kind of work simultaneously that one complemented the other. And instead of talking about, you know, generally the four pillars, which is, you know, fitness, family, finances, and friendship. I want to focus on the financial and also the fitness tank and how they both help each other out. And, you know, the story goes back to when I started my business. And for those of you who've seen the movie called Pursuit of Happiness with Will Smith, I remember watching this movie and crying because it really reminded me of my story. You know, I was the underdog in the internship of the uh, insurance company I was uh, I was interning with. I remember a lot of them had things figured out. A lot of them had money. I didn't. So I stayed later. I called call. I built a list. I was skipping lunch breaks. I... I uh, was uh, taking some of the snacks to eat later because I couldn't afford to buy lunch or dinner. I would skip going to dinner with a lot of the peers because they would go do happy hours and stuff. And I would say cold call. Partly, I was embarrassed to mention that I don't have money to have dinner. And the other part of me was very beneficial because I cold called, built a huge list to start a business with. Right. So that was back in 2010. And I want to walk you through the journey of, of what that was like and how you know the financial tank was complemented with the fitness tank and how they both merged together. And the story goes back to 2000, beginning of 2010. So when the internship began for me, when I got accepted to be opening up my insurance agency, it's an eight month long internship. And I remember being in front of the executives at the time I'm 21 years old. And they're like, we're taking a huge risk on giving the opportunity because we've never hired somebody your age to represent our company. And I said, well, what do I need to do? So they gave me an impossible task. Well, at least mission impossible at the time. They said, we need you to get, get us 2,000 names of people that'd be interested in business with you when you do open up, which was going to be September of 2010. So essentially, I had nine months to get that done. So internship began. And I remember prior to that, I worked in insurance business for another business owner. So I had actually written the business of all my friends and family there. So I didn't really have a list of people. So my question was, where do I get the list of 2,000 names? Uh, the answer was more like, we don't care. You'll figure it out. At the time, um, a good friend mentor, Dan, was kind of walking me through the process. And he mentioned, go to uh, look up contractors in your state, the phone book. There is lists you can purchase, you can call. 
And I did that. I actually, for every lunch break and after every internship class where a lot of my peers would go for happy hour and lunch breaks, I stayed in cold call. Uh, and I learned a, a very powerful formula that anywhere between 100 to 150 cold calls gets you about 10 people that says, yes, you can call me and offer your products and services eight months or six months or three months out from now. Come up with a good line. Kept on calling, kept on calling, kept on calling. I offered my services to pretty much everybody in the city. I purchased lists. I cold called the entire um, uh, yellow book and then the white pages and you name it and call the businesses in the area. And I remember at the end of the internship, it was about a month before I had to submit my final business plan. I had about 1800 names, didn't quite have 2000. I remember going to the final meeting, the skill check, and I had handwritten notes in the notepad. I had Excel spreadsheet with names. Uh, I had stuff on my cell phone, you name it. As I'm presenting to them and I so, you know, I apologize. I didn't meet the criteria. You know, you you wanted 2,000, I have 1,800. And unfortunately, I didn't deliver. So if you guys need to cut me, then cut me now. And I remember the executive board that was approving my final business plan and kind of going over my lease. And, you know, you have to look for employees and you have to, you have to show them like a plan for the next 90 days from the opening date to, you know, to how the first year is going to look like. They just kind of looked at it and they said, you're fine. Uh, I think you'll be okay. We've been watching you making these cold calls and, and we've been seeing you actually a few of your peers sometimes join. You've been a good influence on some of the peers in the internship group, which was interesting because I thought if I didn't get 2000, then it's a no, but 1800 was enough, was kind of upset. But at the same time, I, I, I learned that, you know what, you know, I got close enough to be good enough that I was really hard on myself that I didn't deliver 2000. And I remember we started and uh, my good friend, mentor, Dan at the time, you know, he's still a friend and mentor of mine. He says, Mark my words that it's less about these 1800 names or the 2000 name assignment we give. It's more about what you become in the process. It's the same concept of getting a degree in college, right? That piece of paper means nothing if you walk out of college entitled, lazy, full of yourself, thinking just because you got this piece of paper is going to solve your problems. No, no, that's your gateway into the door. What did you become in the process of obtaining this goal, obtaining a difficult list, obtaining the degree? I've got a ton of friends with degrees who just don't want to work. It's like a waste of a degree. Same thing as me getting these 1800 names, not learning anything or just throwing the list away. So I quickly learned in our first year in business, we were the number one auto Ronyu producers in the entire Pacific Northwest. And I remember at the end of the year where majority of the business I was writing is from all these relationships I built through cold calling and ton of it came from this list. And I remember end of the year, I got invited to this meeting where I was awarded a gift on stage in front of our executive board, one of the most Rewarding days of my life where I felt like I made it because it was a social reject before that. Didn't speak English. You know, we were homeless. We were living on people's couches, you name it. So to me, getting to a place where I'm getting recognition by people I never thought would shake hands with me meant the world to me. Remember that was a like a weekend went by, went back to the office and and I realized this is not a good way to run a business. I cannot doing 12, cannot be doing 12, 14 hour days cold calling and calling and and, and, and prospecting. This is not something I can continuously do without causing burnout. So I remember a while back, you know, during the internship, there's a piece to opening up a business where you had to take what you've learned, like a skill check, and then that would put you into an existing office to produce, to cold call, kind of like that story in Pursuit of Happiness with Will Smith. They would give you lists and leads, and we had to work these leads. And, you know, as I built the relationship at the time, I was uh, given the internship to be an intern in an existing successful office. Now we're currently really good friends. Is also a good mentor. My name's name is Ali. 
uh, Ali was really mentoring me through this six week uh, period where I had to intern in different office to prove my skills. Could I sell? And I actually sold really well. Um, he gave me lists. I worked the lists and made lots of sales. So it was part of graduating process like that movie, Pursuit of Happiness. I keep on going back to because that movie was just so much relevant to my life. And there was a one point I remember. So prior to becoming the getting into the insurance business, Ali was a stockbroker. And I remember there was something he shared with me. It was very interesting. And I took that really seriously. And I took that really close to heart. He said, as stockbrokers, there's been many times where we represent stock of a company. Somebody goes to initial public offering. They bring us you know, their portfolio. And we have to sell it to stockbrokers. And you might not know too much about the company, but we always knew there's a significant pattern of a company doing really well as long as the CEO ran marathons. So if somebody comes to us like, we'd like you to help us grow and, and share, you know, sell our shares, we're going public or we have these shares, can you please help us you know, gather money? That's what stock sales are. You know, without much research, we can almost tell we're going to make a lot of money for our customers by selling these stocks because the CEO runs marathons, they will be successful. So there's this noise in the 90s and 80s that if a company wants to do well, it's almost like you can sell their stocks and they'll do well. As a, as a financial advisor, as a stockbroker, your best interest is to sell stocks that make more money because customers give you more money. So this was the thing that Ali shared with me. I'm like, that's interesting. I'm like, Ali, do you know why? And he's like, I have no idea. Maybe one day you'll run a marathon, you figure it out. So after about a year in a business, I remember also right around the time I got married and had my first son, firstborn David. And there's a thing, a famous term for most parents called sympathy weight, right? My wife gained a pound, I gained a pound. She gained 10, I gained 10. And to the point where I was 265 pounds, couldn't run a mile. It was embarrassing. My son was born. She lost all the weight. I was still fat and ugly and out of shape. And I said, enough is enough. Let me put that marathon theory to test because I'm overworked. I am unhealthy. I don't feel good. And I have to do something else to figure things out. So this financial thing was being figured out for my life, right? Production was good. Money was coming in. My team was selling. I was still felt like I was overworked and this would have caused a burnout. So right around that time, there's a saying that don't make any decisions when you're angry and don't make any commitments when you're happy. I made a commitment when I was happy. I had a great day in the office. I'm driving on the freeway, listening to a good podcast. And I'm like, let me just buy a ticket to a marathon. So I went on Google and Googled and Seattle marathons are coming up. And about six months from that day, there was uh, the rock and roll marathon happening in Seattle, Washington. So of course, I buy the ticket. And when you're in good mood, you commit to things. Bought the ticket, read this book. It was called Daniel's Running Formula. Talked about how to run, what to do. And then I didn't read the book thoroughly. I skimmed through the important pages. I've read the summary. It was enough for me to start my journey. So I remember pumped up next day after I skimmed through the book, went to the gym at 5, 5.30 in the morning, got on the treadmill. I'm about to do a 10-mile run. Mile and a half in, mile in, my ankle hurts. I keep jogging. And I think that I, I don't think I even got to two miles because I kept on walking and running from the pain. And then I stopped. So I'm like, this doesn't feel comfortable. Let me just get on the elliptical or Stairmaster. So I got on the elliptical. You know, the pain in the ankle was there, but, you know, finished about an hour working out, went, did some weightlifting, showered, went home. The entire day, my ankle hurt. Now, at the end of the day, I look at my ankle. It's three times the size it should be. Um, probably for about two months, I couldn't even begin to even jog just because from the pain of me stepping onto that ankle. So I just continuously stayed on the elliptical and the stairmaster, do whatever I could to get cardio going. And then as soon as the ankle de and then 
you know, I started doing longer runs. And the formula in the book was one day a week should be your longest run, right? So uh, we would do short runs, interval runs, and I just kind of followed the formula. And Mondays, I would have my longer run. As in, I tried a three-mile run and then, you know, work out, get stronger, strengthen the shins. A four-mile run next Monday, five, worked my way up to about 15, 16. And the book said, if you can run 17 miles, you can do complete a marathon. So remember, worked my way up to 17 miles, ran the first marathon. And there's this unwritten rule that athletes running a marathon typically hit a wall between mile 18th or 20. And that's a lot of the runners, marathon runners say, you, um, you hit this invisible wall. And that's where the really race begins, mile 20. And I remember right around mile 18 through 20, I can't remember exactly mile mark, my quad started cramping, hamstring started cramping, and my calf started cramping, my abs started cramping, and then the same thing with the other leg. What sucks about having your quad cramp and your hamstring cramp at the same time, because if you're, if your quad cramps, you can actually stretch your leg out, right? If your hamstring cramps, you can kind of like reach down to your toes, and that will help you with that cramp. But what sucked is I couldn't lift my leg, and I couldn't go down because I was trying to relieve the cramp from my hamstring, my quad would cramp up. If I was trying to relieve the, the, the cramp from my quad, my hamstring would lock up. So I was like a stick slowly moving forward. And the people that organize marathons know these things. So they have uh, eight stations right around the area. And there was one within walking distance. And they were kind of looking at me and expecting me to walk towards them. And I do kind of work my way up to it. Like sit down, they start massaging my legs. So the one of the medical assistants there asks me, hey, what's your intake like? I'm like, what do you mean? Like, well, well, electrolytes, not making the story up. I had no idea what the word electrolyte meant. I said, what is an electrolyte? Like, are you not taking any electrolytes? I'm like, no, no, no. I, I try to, you know, eat healthy and they were drink healthy. Like you weren't drinking the Gatorade or the energy gels. I'm like, no, that, that stuff is full of sugar. I had no clue or understanding about proper intake. You need those calories and the salt and everything the Gatorade comes with and those energy gels come in. I was just drinking the water at every aid station. And of course, when you sweat so much, salt, uh, electrolytes leave your body, lactic acid gets in and you muscle seize just like that. So she takes a, a large cup of Gatorade, dumps two table salts, uh, tablespoons of salt in there, stirs it up, makes me drink, makes me another one. I drink it again. It was disgusting. Uh, she's like, okay, just walk it off. We think you'll be okay. Walk for 10 minutes. Legs come back. I limp and I'm still hurting. The cramping really hurt my, my muscles and my legs. Uh, you know, between limping, jogging and walking, I finished the race. Where am I going with this? goes back to one of my favorite quotes. Pain of discipline weighs much less than pain of regret. I can't tell you how much sleep I lost by not training properly, not doing more research, not asking questions. I just committed. And that's the thing about my personality. I have, you know, I aim, I actually, I, it's like ready, shoot, and then aim. And I've done that many times in my life where I've shot myself in the foot. But the good that comes from being an executioner is far greater than the bad comes from you doing things that you're not ready for. Because that first marathon, if I was waiting for a perfect time, I probably would have never done it. So I'm glad I committed. I could have committed better. And I did lose some sleep over and I'll talk a little bit more about that as well. And I remember after the marathon, a few weeks goes by, I get back uh, you know, together with, with Ali and I'm like, Ali, so I ran my first marathon. He's like, let's grab lunch and talk about the lesson. And he asked me, he's like, what was the lesson from the marathon hike? And I'm like, I have no idea. I remember you told me about this whole thing when the CEO or the owner of the business runs a marathon, their stocks do well. I, I hasn't really improved my business. Um, I feel like less healthy. Everything hurts. It's been two weeks. I'm still hurting. Uh, I don't know what this lesson is. So maybe I think the lesson could be 
not just run a marathon. You did say runs marathon. So maybe I need to continuously run marathons, right? It's the habit of establishing, of becoming something. If you become something, you continuously do that. You don't just cross the finish line and stop. So my thing was, I'm going to do a better job at the marathon. So I ran another one. Instead of a six and a half hour marathon, second was four and a half. Third one was three and a half. And then one day I remember I'm going to properly train. I joined the team. We started doing interval training on tracks on Tuesdays. And I would actually really follow a good plan, good nutrition, got that figured out. I ran another one and I ran it in three hours and seven minutes, right? It was like a north of 710, 712 per mile pace, something like that. And I remember going to the coaches in the, in the team that I joined. And I said, what are the odds of me making a you know, Boston Marathon? And they're like, well, the time for you, your age category is three hours and five minutes. I'm like, I'm within two minutes of that. And I remember one of the coaches says, you cannot improve two minutes. Not a, It's going to take some time because you were that close and you ran your hardest based on your heart rate and the data they looked at. And to me, I, I love when somebody says I can't do something. It puts a chip on my shoulder that I'm going to prove this person wrong. And I and I now I hired an individual coach. I'm like, I need you to help me to get two minutes quicker. Long story short, uh, last year, I ran the marathon. I uh, was, I ran it in three hours, four minutes and 32 seconds, which was 28 seconds of not qualifying, but I did qualify. And I just ran my uh, first Boston marathon in April. That's a whole different story of a whole episode we can do on about how my body failed. I had knee issues. I lived most of it, but I finished and I brought home a Boston marathon medal and actually took my team with me to this event. It was very special. Uh, I had a great time minus the race was horrible. We'll talk about that. But again, like I said, we finished. So when I fast forward and I go think about how the business improved as I got into these endurance races, what it did to influence my team, I would actually wake up early, do my workout, show up to the office. I got a watch, a Garmin watch that measures my steps. We would compare steps. We would talk about the fitness. Hi, how much did you run this morning? I started posting my workouts on social media. There's a lot of following started happening with people asking me questions about training. And they saw me do this marathon, that marathon. I got into Spartan races along the way. I took my team to Spartan races. We had a great time running together. And we just, the better the fitness got, the better the team commitment got, the more influence I was able to do. I've had some team members that I got with zero fitness background, zero sales background, and it went from nothing to being some of the highest producing insurance team members in the entire country. And I can't say fitness is the answer, but it was a contributing factor to them feeling confident. It's the saying of how you do anything is how you do everything. Well, some of them got into weightlifting, some got into running, some got into Spartan races. I haven't yet got any of my team members in the triathlons, but that's something they got me into. Four years ago, they bought me a ticket to a local sprint triathlon. And like, hey, you're, you know, you're a badass. You can pull this off. It's a short swim. It's an 800 meter swim. You can figure this out. It's a 16 mile bike and it's a 5k run after that. Right. So I'm like, okay, that's interesting. I could probably pull that off. Never did an open water swim. Bombed this race. I went in the open water, was wearing the wrong wetsuit, was wearing a surface wetsuit. Again, didn't research, didn't do anything. I had my brother's aluminum heavy, like 40 pound bike. Uh, no clips. I, I didn't have biking shorts, didn't do research. And I almost got disqualified because I hyperventilated in the water, almost swam out. Team came to watch me. They made an exception. They let me get back in the water and I swam. I was like last place. And again, that regretful feeling was in me that I didn't give it my all. Hired a coach, got all the equipment, got a road bike, got a tri bike. And four years later, last year, I went to the same race and actually won first place. And I qualified for uh, United States uh, national championships which unfortunately I had to cancel the race because of my injury and my knee due to the Boston Marathon. So where am I going with that story? How you do anything is how you do everything. 
the way I took the business seriously, and I noticed I wasn't really doing that with fitness, but when I started taking the fitness as seriously as the business, and I realized it's usually not either or, you can take everything together. Yes, there's no perfect balance. When I train more, I work less. When I train more and work less, well, I, my family kind of felt my absence as well. And when I was spending more time with the family, well, my training sometimes took a hit as well. And my business took a hit as well. But this imperfect balance was this existing factor in life of me chasing success and realizing that for me to feel successful, for me to feel fulfilled. And when I say successful, I don't just talk about being rich. There's a ton of people that have way more money way more successful. There's a ton of people who are way fitter than me. They, they destroy me. They're like an hour ahead of me at the, at the marathon or at the triathlon, right? There's a ton of people who got 20 kids, 10 kids, bigger families than I do and bigger circles. But I think a proper balance comes into my life when I do, if I measure the four together, I feel like there's very few people can come close because I figured out this happiness. So most people tell me like, you're always in good mood. Well, why wouldn't I be in good mood? Health is really good. My circle, it's tight. It's a small circle, but I got friends that if I ask them, we need to go figure something out. We have to go take care of some problems. They show up with no questions asked. Business, I have some of the most amazing employees, the, one of the best teams there is, period. And how can I be upset about you know my family? I have a wonderful relationship with my, my wife, who's my best friend. I got two amazing boys. You know, we, we, we train together as a family once in a while. We vacation. We have a great time together. We cry together. We get upset together. So why wouldn't I always be great when life is great? I'm not waiting for the next vacation to be happy. The greatest and the happiest place to be is where your feet are. Once the balance is figured out, you realize you're not looking for this open hole in your heart. My happiness is there. I'm going to, I'll be happier when I solve these problems at work. I'll be happier when I solve my health issue. No, when you get those things under control and you rebalance and you keep on working on the biggest monkey on your back that year or that quarter or that six months, you realize that happiness truly comes from where you are, not the trip to Spain, not the, oh, I, when I can afford the more expensive gym membership, then that's when I'll train harder. Oh, when I can afford you know more expensive payroll, that's when I can hire winners in my business. For now, I have to settle for these average team members. No, you enjoy what's in front of you and things just happen to get better. You happen to have the best team. You happen to have the best health. You happen to have the best relationship. The grass is never greener on the other side. It's greener right where you water it. So if you continuously water certain things, it gets better because we do truly find what we seek. In many cases, what we seek is right in front of us, right where our feet are. And it's a lesson I learned often because sometimes I would be at the beach, but I was kind of still in the office or I was somewhere of a, there was a problem that wasn't solved. So I wasn't really enjoying the vacation or I would be in the office. Now we're back. I didn't really get a chance to enjoy the vacation. Now I'm like, man, that vacation, I can't wait to do it again. But when I taught myself that in reality, if I'm at work, I'm at work, I'm on vacation, I'm on vacation I'm with my family, with my family, try to put the phone away as much as I can true fulfillment came into my life. Again, I'm always going to reference the lessons in the book. I wrote it because I really feel I found whatever this American dream was. An American dream isn't just about foreigner coming to this country. It's about coming to a country where you don't have to go against man's and God's laws. You can get somewhere. Get somewhere as in you can be healthy. You can have a strong circle. You can be financially stable. And one day you can stop working without worrying about running out of money and having more time left at the end of the paycheck. Now, you want to be able to have more money left. At the, end of the, the, at the end of the month, not the other way around. So my lesson between these pillars were the financial tank really helped the fitness tank and the fitness tank really helped the financial tank. And that is the lesson with this podcast I wanted to share with you guys that if you own a business or you are working for you know corporate world or you have a startup, doesn't matter what you do for a living, 
sometimes a lot of times you might feel exhausted to go out there. I can't wake up early and go to work tired. Yes. At the very beginning, when you wake up early in the morning and try to train before you go to work, it doesn't matter what you're doing. I'm not saying go run a marathon is the answer. You might want to weight lift. You might want to join a CrossFit membership. It doesn't matter what it is. If you do not put your body to some kind of a physical difficulty where you're required to sweat and get your heart rep, you're going to be unhealthy. And that lack of health is going to, is going to result your body from needing more energy to make yourself recover. And the lack of energy you have is going to take away the ability to focus. You're going to have brain fog and other issues. So in reality, you become less successful when you try to save your energy. When you spend more, about one to two months, you're going to feel exhausted. Eventually, you feel like your body's freaking out, thinking, man, this person needs more endorphins, more dopamine, more whatever kind of a chemical to give you more energy. You have a lot far more energy. So the weeks where I do go on vacation, I don't get to train as much. I actually feel like I'm lacking. So the more you give, as far as exert energy, the more you have. Not the, That doesn't work that, that way at the very beginning. It does take about a month or two. And when you do give more as far as physically, running, training, sweating, swimming, whatever you do, eventually you can have more energy for your career. It complements your career. It complements your business. It does do an amazing thing for influence. And I can't even get started about what influence does it does on your spouse and your children. Right? People always talk about what should I do with my kids at private school and this and what books should I have them read? Sometimes very simple things are the best parenting things. Be a good example with fitness. That's, that's a great example for your kids. If you can figure out how to get uncomfortable and it's okay to sweat and it's okay to get uncomfortable and stay uncomfortable and get your heart rate up and stay healthy and cut out sugar. I mean, this, those little lessons in fitness can be one of the greatest things you can do as parenting thing for your children. And also those things really work well in your organization, right? Just because you might not be an employer or a manager or a CEO doesn't mean people around you don't need leadership from you. One of the best influences things you can do just because your business card doesn't say leader doesn't mean you can't be a leader. And some of the best leaders are the ones who are leading regardless of the job title. Be a good influence on your coworkers, right? Walk in and greet people, build fitness, feel confidence, right? People love being around people who are fit. People love being around people who are successful. Right. So why can't you have both? It's never either or. All those pillars typically work together in no perfect balance. So thank you guys for listening to this message. I will spend more time talking about some specifics in the future as well about the uh, the relationship tank as well. We'll talk a little bit more about the uh, the family tank as well. But with this message in this episode, I hope I encourage you to take your fitness more seriously because it does get your career, your financial tank fixed along with it. Thank you guys for tuning in. And till next time, until the next episode. Cheers and to your success.